For the vast majority of you, our preacher tonight, the Reverend Dr. Marlon Butch Hardman, needs no introduction. However, if you are new with us within the last year year or so, you may not have had the privilege of, of getting to know Butch. Butch was an associate pastor here at McLean for over two decades. He has over 50 years' experience in pastoral ministry. A profound blessing uh, to me in my life when I showed up at McLean some six years ago at Fresh Out of Seminary. I was incredibly blessed to be part of a, a pastoral staff that covered uh, three generations of, of pastors, myself, John Hutchinson, and uh, Butch Hardman. We uh, shared a, an office wall throughout that time, and I would often be found knocking on his door uh, asking for uh, advice and asking for help on various different issues, and he was uh, patient beyond patience and uh, has continued to pour into me uh, on a consistent basis since then. So it's a thrill for me to continue uh, partnering with him in ministry and to have him come and share the word with us tonight. So Butch, welcome back. Looking forward to hearing from you. And thank you. It is so good to be back, although I haven't been anywhere. Uh, <laughs> when uh, when I am not out preaching in another church occasionally, uh, we are right here in the second pew, and uh, you can count on that as long as we are in decent health. But it is a delight, and I am honored uh, to have this privilege of sharing God's word again. I invite you to turn in our Father's word, please, to the second chapter of Luke, the very passage from which James preached this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke is not only a physician, but he is a first-class historian. That's been checked out by scholars, and uh, that is a fact. Do yourself a favor. Pretend. It will be hard. But pretend, as I read this passage, that you have never heard it before. Give your attention now to the reading of the word of the living God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, you have given us your holy word that we might learn it, Memorize it, meditate on it, be nourished by it. By your Spirit, be obedient to it, so that others will glorify you as well. And so it is to that end that we pray you would bless this word. In the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The day before Christmas was a hectic one. Dad was bothered with bundles and all kinds of other burdens. Mother's nerves reached the breaking point more than once. Their little girl seemed to be omnipresent. Everywhere they went, she was, until they finally hustled her off to bed. And she was so excited by the fever of the moment, she got mixed up and she prayed, Forgive us our Christmases as we forgive those who Christmas against us. Yes, this is the time of the year when many, many individuals in our culture go out and spend money they don't have, buying things they don't need to impress people they don't like. It's sad, but true. But you and I must distinguish between Christmas culturally understood and a biblically-based celebration of Advent. What is Advent? Well, it's from a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming. And it's the Christian calendar's way of telling us that Christmas is coming, the day when our Savior was born, when we celebrate that. Advent is made up of four Sundays before Christmas Day. It's not only a time of anticipating and commemorating the celebration of the coming of our Lord Jesus. It is a looking forward to his second Advent and realizing that there is a final judgment ahead for those, only those, who have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ will ever be able to sustain that judgment. The passage that I read a few moments ago is laced with biblical realities. Biblical realities because they are supernatural. God's sovereignty and providence are seen so vividly in the first four verses, although through the whole passage. 
As James mentioned this morning, Nazareth was some 80 miles from Jerusalem or Bethlehem. It was really closer to 90 miles if you took the safest route, because if you went through Samaria, there were thieves and robbers and racial tension that might bring trouble to you. It illustrates in this passage how the Lord uses circumstances to move people and events. You know that in your own life. It shows us that God has a special place for what I like to call the little people. I don't just mean the short people, but for those who are not the mighty, not the elite. And if you ever go through the whole Bible, you will see that pattern that God majors in weakness and brings strength out of it. He takes the wisdom of man and turns it into folly. Everything concerning the details of Jesus' birth points to obscurity, poverty, and even rejection. So why in the world would I give this homily a title, The Glorious Advent, The Glorious Message, rather, of Advent? Well, because if you look again at verse 9, you see the glory of God shining physically. And in verses 13 and 14 and 20, you see the glory of God spiritually. As shepherds and others are affirming him, are attributing worth to him, are worshiping and praising him. Now do yourself another favor, would you? This one's not quite as hard. Drop yourself into this narrative. Imagine yourself as one of the shepherds. It's another night on the job. You've shown up as usual. You're next to the smelly sheep, and other people are enjoying things in the evening, and here you are, out with a few other shepherd friends. You're not the most pleasant people to be around, says the society, the culture. For shepherds in that day were despised. In fact, they were disbarred from giving testimony in court. It's another night, a night of work. Suddenly, The visible, the invisible, becomes visible. An angel of the Lord appears to them. And they were scared out of their wits. What would you expect them to do? Look at one another casually and one of them would sing, Do you see what I see? No. No. This is not an ordinary, everyday experience. You and I cannot imagine the glory of God showing up. What is this glory? Well, we read right over it. I've heard many a person read this passage, and and the glory of the Lord shone around them as though it were another bad day on the Dow Jones averages. (laughs) That isn't what Luke is telling us. The glory... Of the Lord. The word here is doxa in Greek. It's the first part of our word doxology, and it's the counterpart in the New Testament for an Old Testament word kavod, which means glory, but at root means weightiness, heaviness. This is a heavy 
word. And one scholar described the glory as the radiating glory of God's majesty that became visible to the shepherds like it had become visible to Moses at the burning bush and would later become visible to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is the radiating, brilliant, glorious splendor of the majesty of God. Don't read over it. In Palestine, when a baby was born, musicians would show up at the door and celebrate the arrival of that child with simple music. But because our Lord Jesus Christ was born in what amounts to a stable, that was not able to, but they were not able to carry that out. But even so, as you read in this passage, there was music. There was music. A vast army, for that is what the word host in that verse means. A vast army of angels praising God. Can you understand then why they were so afraid? That is not your ordinary, everyday experience. Now, with all of that in front of us, in the last few moments, I want to share with you among the many truths, three that I believe are among the most significant. They are all about Jesus. No surprise. Truth number one, Jesus is the promised Savior. I want to make a statement that asks you if you agree or disagree. Not out loud, but to yourself. Here's my statement. There is power in a promise. Especially when the one making it is fully trustworthy. There is power in a promise. Do you agree or disagree? I hope you agree. For the baby in the manger was the result of promise. And he is given three titles, as you heard this morning. Savior, Christ, Messiah, and Lord. What does the term Savior mean? We read these biblical words and don't always stop to understand exactly what is that. Well, Savior is the noun. What is the, what is the verb, the word of action? It means to save, to rescue, to deliver. To deliver us from what? Our sin and rebellion and idolatry and guilt. Which phrases in verse 11 inform us that this baby is the promised Savior? Well, look at it again, would you? Verse 11. In the city of David, Christ the Lord. Don't find it surprising that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that he would be born where he would be born, how he would be born, when he would be born, why he would be born. He was born in Bethlehem from two Hebrew words, Beth, meaning house of, and Lachem, meaning food or bread. And what a perfect place for him to be born that would later declare, I am the bread that has come down from heaven, the bread of life. Dr. J.P. Free, in his excellent book, Archaeology and Bible History, page 284, calls attention to the fact that according to Canon Lydon, 
There are 332 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament which have been literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And to the additional fact that the mathematical probability of all these prophecies being fulfilled in one man is represented by the fraction, are you ready for this? One over 84 followed by 97 zeros. That's astounding. But may I remind you that mathematical probabilities never saved anyone. It is Jesus who does that. You see, the Bible isn't true because it works. It works because it's true. Who is this tiny baby in that feeding trough? He is the incarnate God. Man cannot become God, but God became man. Or as Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the middle of the 19th century, put it, he that made man was made man. Or as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you understand more fully what God is saying to us? That the baby in that manger is the creator, the redeemer, the provider, the sustainer, As J.I. Packer put it, the divine son became a Jew. Almighty God appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And Packer is right. It's staggering, but it's true. He is the promised Savior. Truth number two. Verse 11 tells us that he is the powerful Savior. You see, he did not remain the baby in the manger. The last verse of this chapter says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And he began his so-called public ministry about the age of 30. He preached and taught and healed, and then he came to that hour for which he had come into the world, and that was to die on the cross for the sins of his own, those who would believe and trust in him and him alone. He is no longer on that cross. He is the risen lamb, lamb, the lion of Judah, and he is powerful because, as verse 11 says, he is Christ the Lord, Messiah himself. Now, in the New Testament, the word Lord is used in three different ways. And we need to make sure by the context which it is. First of all, it is a term of respect, like our word, sir. Secondly, the word Lord in biblical times referred to a slave owner. And finally, to the deity himself, to almighty God. And this context absolutely demands that third and final meaning. Dr. Benjamin Warfield, 
who in the days of Princeton Theological Seminary in the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th centuries taught theology, wrote this, The glory of the Incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God, nor a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, one on whose almighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. The Holy Spirit is the means of that power to our daily lives. From the words of one of my mentors, the Christian life is the life of Christ, reproduced in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response to his word. Now let me run that by you again because that's a mouthful. The Christian life, biblically understood, is the life of Christ reproduced in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response to his word. Oh, my fellow believer, do you understand that Almighty God in the person of the Holy Spirit resides in you and he is in you to reproduce the life of Christ Not to have you try harder to do better, but to live out Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is indeed the promised Savior. He is the powerful Savior. Finally, and as I like to say, focally, Jesus is the personal Savior. He is the personal Savior. Rivet your attention on the first three words of verse 11. For unto you. For unto you. In the Greek text, you will find that that pronoun is emphatic. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The context revealed that this was the promise God made to his ancient people, national Israel, but its ultimate fulfillment was that Jesus would be the light to lighten us Gentiles in building the new Israel, Jew and Gentile together, because God had promised Abram, you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Listen carefully. When you read the scriptures... You find them telling you that Jesus Christ did not die for some nameless, faceless mass of humanity called the world. He died for individuals. He died for you. Dr. William Hendrickson, whose excellent commentaries I would not be without wrote this about verse 11. It was to save sinners that Jesus Christ came into the world. He did not come to help them to save themselves, nor to induce them to save themselves, nor even to enable them to save themselves. He came to save them 
And we live in a culture that maintains that a relationship with Jesus must be kept private. Oh, rest assured, it is personal. But my dear friend, the last thing it could be is private. Because before our Lord ascended to the Father's right hand, he said, when you go, make disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups. Knowing Jesus Christ is the last thing you'd ever imagine as private. It cannot be by the very nature of the case. John Wesley found that out. The man who later became the founder of what is known as Methodism. They were called Methodists to begin with because they were so methodical in their wanting to see and please the Lord. He was on his way back from Georgia where he had been as a missionary. John Wesley at the time was a biblical scholar, a graduate of Oxford University, ordained in the Church of England, the Anglican Church. But he was uncertain of his relationship to Jesus. During a violent storm, a group of people from a section of Europe called Moravia were singing on deck while the storm was going on, and Wesley was scared to death. He asked them, how can you sing in the midst of such violence? They looked at him and asked him, among other things, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior? And so, by default, he went back to the orthodox answer. The orthodox answer he had learned at Oxford. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. The Moravians looked at him again and said, But is he your Savior? He made it back to England. And a short time later, on Aldersgate Street, while a man was simply reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I did trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's God's question to you tonight. Is Jesus, his son, your savior? Or will you simply leave here tonight a smarter, more religious sinner? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The good news is that this precious little baby on the manger straw in Bethlehem not only saves his people from their sins, but he is the gift who keeps on giving because he not only saves, he sanctifies those who are his. That is, he works in them by his Holy Spirit. He matures them. He disciplines them. He fashions and molds them into the likeness of Jesus Christ and gives them the guarantee of glory. When I was 17... Jesus, as I like to put it, lovingly invaded my life. Now, at 79, I still find him faithful to the very end, all of which points us to the table before us.
to our brother Paul, Jesus declared that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Do you remember the next three words? Until he comes. And you see, that's a critical facet of Advent. Not simply celebrating and commemorating his first coming, but looking forward to his coming again and the final judgment. Living a life of repentance so you are ready and unashamed when he comes. Little wonder then that Dr. Carl Henry, one of the most famous theologians of the 20th century, wrote this. The early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come, and he's coming again soon. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. O God, our great Father, how we thank you for sending your Son to redeem us. How we thank you for the mystery, the utter mystery that bends our minds and warms our hearts that you became a little baby, Lord Jesus and lived among us and that you were willing to put up with all that you went through all at the hands of us, your creatures. So please now, as we sing, as we continue worshiping you, as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, enable us to come, not matter-of-factly, but reverently, in a worthy manner, in a way that says in our hearts, Lord Jesus, because you first loved me, I, we, love you. In your name, amen.